Lord, teach us what we are to know, show us what we are to do, to be your disciples. Amen. Since this is the season of Lent, I am wearing my seven deadly sins bracelets. <laughs> the seven deadly, deadly sins are, I wonder if we can name them, gluttony, anger, sloth, my favorite, <laughs> lust, greed, vanity, what do you think the green one is? Jealousy, envy, seven deadly sins. And what's so deadly about them is that they're mortal sins. So those are the sins that lead to the death of the soul. Now they originated with the Desert Fathers. Those were hermits and predecessors of monks who lived in the desert um, alone or in small groups around the third century. Think. Anthony the Great, Athanasius. And so this list of seven deadly sins made its way into the current list, which was kind of finalized by Pope Gregory in the sixth century. Now you can find references to the seven deadly sins, not in the Bible, like all in one place, but you can find them in liturgies of the Anglican Communion, the Lutheran and the Methodist churches, and still available on Amazon, the 1955 publication aptly titled The Seven Deadly Sins by Billy Graham. But is Lent really about sin? Okay, let's look back a little bit. On Ash Wednesday, maybe you'll recall these words you heard. I invite you therefore in the name of the church to the observance of a holy Lent, by self-examination and repentance, by prayer, fasting, self-denial, and by reading and meditating on God's holy word. And immediately after we heard these words, we fell to our knees, felt the ashes on our foreheads, and heard the refrain go from person to person, remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Remember that you are dust, and to dust you shall return. We went back to our seats. We started to recite Psalm 51, full of all of sadness, failure as children of God. And if that wasn't enough, then we prayed the litany where we said things like this. We listed our failures then, specifically. Kind of close to the seven deadly sins if you really pay attention. We confess to you, Lord, all our past unfaithfulness, the pride, hypocrisy, and impatience of our lives. We confess to you, Lord, our intemperate love of worldly goods and comforts. We confess to you, Lord, our anger at our own frustration and our envy at those more fortunate than ourselves. So yeah, in a way, Lent is about sin. It makes me wonder then, how do our lessons that we hear all throughout all the Sundays in Lent, what do they say about sin? Are they about sin and, and how are they about sin? So I was wondering 
if the story of the woman at the well has anything to say about sin. You know the story. It is, by the way, the longest conversation Jesus ever had with anyone in the whole Bible, all the Gospels. Longer than he talked to his disciples, longer than he talked to any sinners, longer than he talked to his mother. So here he is in the heat of the noonday sun at the well, Jacob's well, it's, it's alleged. And soon a woman comes along. You could just picture her with the water bottle balanced on her arm, shoulder or head, seeing a strange man sitting by the well asking her for a drink. And it's immediately, <laughs> she immediately knows that she's a Samaritan, he's a Jew, she's a woman, he's a man, and they're in a public place. But it is Jesus, and he's usually inviting trouble by being unconventional. Um, so he shouldn't be speaking to a woman in the first place. That's made clear, let alone a member of this particular tribe of people they call Samaritans. So it's kind of disorienting, confusing, all at the same time as John introduces this story. But when you're dealing with Jesus, the thing for John is you have to expect the unexpected. So there happens a conversation, and they continue to talk. And as you listen to this conversation, you wonder if they're both in the same one. Are they actually in the same conversation? The woman somehow knows that she wants what Jesus is offering. Sir, give me this water, she says. But then there's an abrupt change of subject when Jesus tells her to go fetch her husband. Now, she could have said, I thought we were talking about religion. Isn't that kind of a personal question? Or she might lie, or she might walk away, but instead, she stands there, looks him in the eye, and says, I have no husband. And that's kind of a huge revelation for her, and it opens the door for Jesus to tell her the rest of the truth about herself. Notice he doesn't pull away from her. He still wants a drink from her, and he wants to give her one too, only that closeness seems to be too much for her. So she changes the subject back to religion again, maybe trying to draw him back into the argument about Jews and Samaritans, and maybe she figures he knows about her husbands, maybe he knows other stuff about her, and she really, I have a sense she wants to distance herself from this person who makes her feel really uneasy, but also somehow comforted in a way. But when he draws back, when she draws back, he moves closer. And this is where it reminds me of confession. Confession, and I mean in both the practical way and in the sacramental way, okay? I've been on both sides of the sacramental confession which is called the Sacrament of Reconciliation. So I've been the confessor and I have been the confessee. And you know the Episcopal Church offers this Sacrament of Reconciliation and it's probably the closest image I can find to what's going on here between Jesus and this woman. He saw her sin. He saw everything and somehow when she saw it in his presence, it was okay. She was not being judged 
She was not being evaluated. She was not being criticized. There was her sin laid out, and there was just Jesus, or just love, or just acceptance. When Jesus lets her know he really, really knows her, all the things that she has hidden or is ashamed of, all those things that are happening in her, he reveals himself. There's Jesus right in front of her. And that's how it still happens, I think. The Messiah is the one, Jesus is the one whose presence, we're in his presence and we know who we are. The good and the bad of it, the sin and the virtue of it, all of it, the hope of it, it's that presence. The Messiah is someone for her who shows her who she is by showing her who he is. And it's crossing all the boundaries, breaking all the rules, dropping all the disguises. In fact, it's like somebody you've known your whole life. And someone might say, Jesus gets us. Jesus gets us. Maybe you've had that experience with a person. I have. have you have a friend, someone you say, oh, she really gets me. A friend who asks what's wrong when they see your face and they haven't even spoken to you yet. A person who's not afraid to call you out. A person you never have to say, you know what it's like because they know what it's like. That person can be a friend. That person can be a family member. When I was a child, a person who got me, understood me, was there, was my grandmother. She didn't expect perfection. She didn't criticize the things I did wrong or clumsily, like feeding the chickens or taking care of the garden. But the most important thing, when I deliberately disobeyed her, she never withdrew from me. It doesn't mean I didn't get any consequences. Yes, there were surely consequences. But her love demonstrated to me that sin was part of my human nature. It wasn't a measure of my worth. So she was Jesus to me. The effect Jesus has and had on that woman is stunning. That woman left behind, she left behind her water jug, did you notice that? She left behind what brought her there in the first place because she found something she didn't even know she was searching for and wanted to share it. So by the end of the story, it's not just a woman who's excited about Jesus, but a whole town full of Samaritans. Whole town full of people found themselves, found they belong after all. They said, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we've heard it for ourselves, and we know that this is truly the savior of the world. They found out that in spite of centuries of hatred, the seven deadly sins, what matters is their worth to God, without question. All because of a conversation that happened sitting at a well, a man who actually saw people and helped them see themselves. Jesus gets us. And when we meet Jesus and see ourselves, 
we find something maybe that was broken in us coming alive in us. Something that was lost maybe that's found. And maybe we've all come here to this particular well today looking for nothing more than the ordinary drink we expect to find, which is great. Wonderful drinks we get here. But if we're not careful, Jesus, who knows us inside, the secrets of our heart, may ask us for a drink. If he does, maybe we should think about giving him what he asks. Give him whatever we have to give out of the deepest depth of the soul, including the darkest places we may have hidden even from ourselves. We'll never be thirsty again. Amen.